Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Welcome in. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell here with you from the Zone Radio studios in Bangor, Maine for episode number 185. We've got a couple of fine guests for you this week on the program. A little bit later on, we talk with talented writer Colin Fleming. Up first, though, a brand new film coming out, much awaited for quite some time for Beatles fans, Peter Jackson's three-part, six-hour series on the Beatles called Get Back. Uh, it's a deep dive into uh, all of the films and the tapes and the audio that was gathered uh, back in the late 1960s for what became the Let It Be film. But this one, promising a different look at the Beatles. So whether you've seen it yet or not, you'll likely enjoy this conversation about it as we talk with actor and Beatles blogger Mark Cartier. What do you think so far of what you've seen of the trailers for Get Back from Peter Jackson? Uh, what I've seen is really exciting. I mean, he's been teasing us with this, like you say, for a couple of years now. Uh, and what really impresses me the most in looking at these is the, the, the picture quality is amazing. Yes. I remember seeing the original Let It Be movie in a movie theater when it came out. And it was grainy and dark and uh, really hard to see. And, and Peter Jackson has cleaned this up, so it just looks pristine. I mean, it looks like they just shot this yesterday. It's fantastic. And uh, you know, I, I saw Let It Be when it came out, but I, I have, I don't have a great memory of it, and I think my memory has been influenced by the public perception, which is that uh, this was a film about a band that was breaking up and couldn't stand each other anymore. And and what Peter Jackson has has said with his film is that well, that's not really the story. And and I even saw a comment last week from uh, Michael Lindsay Hogue who made let it be that he said well that that's really not what the original was about either there were moments of of friendship and levity and fun but there were also some of the arguments and disagreements in there too yeah and and like you i really have a very uh, dim memory of the movie because i only saw it once when it came out uh aside from clips that i've seen on the internet over the years they have not made it available all these years so I don't remember a lot of it except the rooftop concert, which you see a mm. lot of. Uh, but um, I guess there was a lot of that stuff in there. I just don't remember it. Part of the reason I think it was so dark, too, was because it really wasn't made to be a theatrical film. It was really supposed to be a television documentary about the making of the album. So it was shot on 16 millimeter. And they blew it up to 35 when they decided we're going to make a feature film out of it. And so that's why I think the original has such a grainy quality to it, you know? So, Mark, can you can you recap the backstory of what was going on? They were they wanted to do a concert for the first time since 1966. All kinds of discussions about where they might do such a thing. And so what was the thought process as they gathered to put this all together? Uh, well, McCartney, of course, was like the driving force, as he was for a lot of their projects at this point. And uh, he really did want them to get back to their roots and play live. And so they were going to do, like you say, a concert. They couldn't figure out where to have it. 
but they knew that they only had about three or four weeks to do this entire project because Ringo was soon to start filming the film The Magic Christian with Peter Sellers. So they only had the month of January to do this, and they had they had to write new songs. The, the, the idea was that this concert would be all new material, which is a very bold thing to do, really, instead of going out and playing your greatest hits. So they had to come up with all of this material. So they went into Twickenham Film Studios to start rehearsing a batch of new songs. Uh, Paul had a lot written. George actually had a lot written. John didn't have much as they started these sessions. And so uh, it took them a long time to start developing what they thought would be a live performance uh, with no overdubs, it wasn't going to be like their recent albums like Sgt. Pepper or the White Album even. And so uh, it was. They, they put a lot of constraints on themselves in a very short time period. And that may be why some of the tempers started to flare as the project went on. And along with all that time pressure they were dealing with, being, as you mentioned, on that unnatural turf of uh, Twickenham Studios, which uh, from from the film that we've seen from that footage just looks so so sparse and uninviting. Yeah, all they had was like a big psych in the background and they put some colored lights on it. But they're in this big, dark, cavernous film studio in January. (laughs) It's cold. They have to show up early in the morning because the film crew has different hours than the Beatles normally would uh, be recording at night. So they have to show up early in the morning and start playing these songs with cameras all around them, filming them. And uh, they started to feel the pressure as as the the thing went on until, of course, the famous little blow up with George and Paul about uh, eight or 10 days into the project, at which point George just walked out of the sessions. And that was essentially the end of the Twickenham part part of the uh, story. Yeah, then they go back to the more familiar territory at, uh, at what we now know as Abbey Road, and, and things took on a different feel when they were there. And it seems like when they're there, that's when we see these guys going back to what made it successful in the first place. Uh, yeah, but actually, you know, it wasn't Abbey Road that they went to. They went to their Apple building. Oh, that's right. And that's they, right. They had a new studio built in the basement of the Apple building. Uh, and it wasn't even ready yet. This guy, Magic Alex, had promised them like <laughs> 95 tracks and something absurd and, and like force fields to dampen the sound between the instruments and all these ridiculous promises. And uh, their, their longtime producer, George Martin, actually, actually had to bring in some uh, remote equipment to make the studio usable. But once they got in there, that's when things really started to cook, like you say, especially once George brought Billy Preston into the sessions. Yeah, and they mentioned that a little bit. Uh, oh, they mentioned it on the 60 Minutes piece the other night on the documentary that uh, Billy Preston changed the whole temperature of that room when he showed up. Yeah, it was like when uh, George had brought Eric Clapton in the previous year to play on While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Suddenly the guys all start behaving themselves because there's another professional in the room. And... Uh, and also, Preston brings something that they, they don't have. All of the Beatles could play keyboard. Even Ringo could sit down and, and hammer out a basic tune on a piano. But none of them, not even Paul, could play keyboards the way that Billy Preston could. He was just a remarkable player. 
And he was also like a, a ray of sunshine in the room. And so they kind of like rally around him. And the, the songs, everything becomes really more productive at that point in the session. Now, whose idea was it to go up on the roof? Um, it was kind of a group discussion. Uh, they knew that they weren't going to have this big, grand uh, performance that they had originally envisioned. They talked about an amphitheater in North Africa. They talked about doing out an ocean liner in the <laughs> middle of the Mediterranean. And suddenly, Michael Lindsay Hogg, that original director, said, we need a concert. Where are we going to do it? And somebody suggested the roof. I'm not exactly sure who. And even up to the last minute, a couple of them did not want to do it. But once all the equipment was set up on that cold January day, January 30th, 1969, they all went up there and they delivered. Uh, they played a great set, especially John and Paul really come alive uh, once they're uh, even though they can't see most of the people they're playing for. You can see that they're just having a blast up there. Absolutely. And while many have said this, well, it's the album, as we mentioned, of a of a band breaking up, but it's some of their best work together. We see it up on the roof. We see it in the studio with them working out the details on two of us. Yes. Yeah. Oh, great song. Uh, a song that people often think is about John and Paul. You can really take it that way. But Paul really wrote this song about himself and his new girlfriend, soon to be wife, Linda Eastman. And uh, uh, they sing it as a duet. I think it's probably the second best duet they ever sang. Mm -hmm. uh, my personal favorite is uh, If I Fell from, uh, oh, yeah. from A Hard Day's Night. But uh, they, they sing two of us together. And it's just a beautiful blend of voices. They, they, they were big fans of the Everly Brothers. They fashioned themselves after those guys. And this is like the closest they probably ever got to that. We're talking with Mark Cardia here on Downtown about Get Back, the new Peter Jackson documentary on the Beatles, a three-parter that drops uh, next weekend on uh, Disney, Disney Plus, uh, whatever streaming service that is. I, I think what I'm most excited about that I've seen from the trailer are those moments of levity, the guys laughing and having fun. Even, even the little clip I saw of, of Linda Eastman and Yoko laughing together it, it yeah. changes your perception of what was going on at that time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they seem to be having a great time themselves. It, it, it's, it's really nice to see. Uh, Linda's daughter, of course, playing around with John in the studio. Who, she was very young. I think uh, Heather is her name, uh, is, is fun to watch. And even there's, there's a great shot that I see of Billy Preston walking into the studio while the other guys are playing. And he just starts a little dance as he's on his way over to mm. his keyboard. It's just so cool. Yeah, and the, John, of course, always goofed for the camera. I uh, mean, he was a natural. Uh, McCartney's a big ham. So they have a good time, uh, even though uh, the tensions may have been underlying a lot of what was going on. But you can see that they were having fun. Well, and I saw something the other day from uh, McCartney that he's seen the movie, the finished product, and he said it even changes his perception of what the end of the band was like. Wow, that's cool. That's really neat. <laughs> I'm sure Ringo probably will think the same thing when he sees it. Uh, it, it, it probably brings up a lot of memories that, that they uh, had buried or forgotten because, you say, there has been this perception of the Let It Be movie for many years about how it was such a dark period. And even many of their quotes soon after were, were like that. But uh, it couldn't have all been doom and gloom because they came up with some great material. 
particularly McCartney. I mean, let it be the long and winding road, get back, two of us that you mentioned. Those four songs alone are just tremendous. And uh, Lennon comes up with a great one called Don't Let Me Down that they sing. Mm. Uh, they, they revive an oldie of theirs called One After 909, which, an, which is an old rocker, which is fantastic. And then Lennon and McCartney actually had uh, a collaboration, a true collaboration. Uh, I've Got a Feeling. Half the song was written by Paul, and then Lennon attached a piece that he'd written, and uh, they sing it together at the end in tandem. It's great. Well, it's going to be a wonderful moment for Beatles fans. I can't wait to see it next week, and we'll have to uh, we'll have to put our heads together and uh, compare notes once we've both seen this thing. You need to get that Disney Plus subscription, I guess, Mark. I know that's the thing. They kind of they're they're forcing you into getting this. <laughs> I was kind of disappointed initially when they said it wasn't going to be a theatrical movie, but uh, Peter Jackson said he had so much material that he was going to make it a three parter. I guess he has to make everything he touches into a trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, uh, so it's a three-part thing, I guess. And uh, on the other hand, it's going to be great to see all this additional footage, at least for those of mm. us who are Beatles junkies. Yeah. Have you... not, I don't know how much other people are going to love it, but I know we will. Oh, yeah, no question. Have you uh, seen any of McCartney's book yet? I haven't seen the book, but uh, there's so much other stuff that's been going on. I, I really loved his uh, program earlier in the year, McCartney 321. Yes, that he that he did with uh what that what's that producer Rick Rubin? Yeah, wasn't that great? Uh, it was fantastic. Where they just sit there and they talk about the songs and they play segments of them and uh, break it down, and it was just a real great appreciation of what was going on. And Rick really focused on McCartney's bass playing and how innovative it was. Uh, it was really a, a tremendously. Uh, well put together production. Yeah, and what was nice about that, there were clearly some things that that, that caught McCartney by surprise. Oh yeah, and you know, it's one of those deals where they're they're at the mixing board. They've got the original tapes, and sometimes they'll bring up a fader, and it's something that's still on the track, but it's not on the record. Mm. So they're going, what what were we doing here? He goes, I don't know. I'm glad it didn't make it into the finished product, but it's interesting. It's interesting. Well, it's great. It's going to make for a fun Thanksgiving weekend uh, for us Beatles fans. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Mark, uh, I know you will. We'll compare notes later on. But, but thanks so much for coming on to talk with us about it this afternoon. It's always a pleasure. Uh, you have so much knowledge about the Beatles yourself. I don't think you give yourself enough credit. You're as big a fan as I am, so it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Absolutely. Mark, good talking with you, my friend. Be well. I hope you and your family have a great Thanksgiving, and we'll uh, catch up with you soon. Uh, same to you and yours, Rich. Take care. Mark Cartier with us talking about the new Beatles documentary from Peter Jackson, Get Back. We'll take a break for a word from our friends at Cross Insurance when we return a wide-ranging conversation with writer Colin Fleming here on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With a network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Do you have the time to listen to me whine about nothing and everything Back on Downtown, the podcast. Well, a little taste of a great session 
with Green Day, BBC, back in 1994. We talk about that, a great rehearsal recording by the Beatles, a little Orson Welles and more with writer Colin Fleming. Let's begin uh, with a a fascinating Thanksgiving-themed episode of the classic radio show Suspense, uh, The Screaming Woman. (laughs) I love this one. I just love the little girl. Dad, Dad, there's a... There's a screaming woman under the lawn. Oh, yeah. He's a dick, it's at first, isn't he? Like, he's so condescending. Oh, just, honey. We'll talk about it later like, after dinner. <laughs> oh, he's all about, like, I feel like his, his family could have been, like, lit on fire next to him. He's like, I'm eating some bird. This is getting eaten. This is what's going to happen first. And through a Bradbury story, and the thing about Bradbury is that, like, his actual prose on the page could be pretty purple, but when it's streamlined for radio, it can work really well. And I think this is a pretty believable story about a kid who's not being believed. And they think that she's well, not necessarily crying wolf, but there's this conveniently, there's like this vacant lot next to her house, which reminds me a little bit about like the, like the, the, the pond at the dump in that episode or not that episode, but that public information film we were talking about recently. Oh yeah. Kind of like this convenient sort of like, nasty, mangy lot that you don't play in. The type of lot that, like, these days you'd find syringes in and, like, stick yourself, that kind of thing. And when she's there by herself, this little girl, like, playing during the Thanksgiving holiday, she hears this screaming from under the ground. And you don't know, like, at first, is this girl crazy? What's going on here? Is she having some sort of breakdown? Is her imagination overactive? And she has this little friend. I think the kids are really good in this she has this little boyfriend and he comes over and and they're playing or whatever. And he's able eventually to hear this too. But like when the adult is there, you know how it's going to go. There's not going to be like any sound that is made at that time. So she thinks that there's this woman buried alive and it becomes this mystery that she starts to piece together involving like the guy who owns the lot. And there's like this other guy, red herring tries to chase them off. And as it turns out, yeah, there's someone buried there, buried yeah. alive. <laughs> I, some of Bradbury's best work involves kids. Uh, I love, uh, and I think it, it may have been on Suspense, a radio play called Zero Hour, where kids are uh, planning to help an invasion by aliens. And, of course, none of the adults believe it. They think, oh, it's great, play your, play your alien game, and then, and then it turns out to be the real deal. The best version of that, I think, is from X-1. It's the most streamlined version of that particular story you mentioned. And you're right. It's a good point. He is excellent with kids. And I always feel like you can tell sort of how well someone writes, the way they handle stories about children, because children possess, it's difficult, they possess a wisdom in some ways that, Adults won't have because adults have turned their back on curiosity and on wonder. At the same time, that wisdom is tempered by naivete and their lack of experience. So they can stumble into these profound moments, but they're also children, and they don't have maybe that many profound moments. They're almost accidental, but they count just as much because they're hard won in their way. So in that particular story, you have this rose bush, and this rose bush becomes this portal between the worlds. Mm. And it's like, why not? It makes sense. I mean, it makes as much sense as, as anything else with another race. So I think the kids in this are, are excellent. And also 
they have these communications via telephone, and that allows for exposition without it being that official written into dialogue exposition because the phone conversations are natural within the story. When you call someone up on the phone, or at least this is how it used to be, you had a reason to call them. Like you were telling them a bit of information that, oh, I meant to tell you after uh, you went home today, we were playing in the playground and everyone said you suck ass. Like that type of thing is kind of like an update like that. So the updates work well here and I also like, even though we get this outcome, we get a result, we get an answer. There's the neat trick that the ending is still open-ended. Yes. It's not wrapped up bow style. Like, it happens off stage via that phone conversation. We're talking with Colin Fleming on Downtown. Up next, a wonderful performance, recitation, whatever you want to call it, from Orson Welles interpreting John Donne. This was fascinating. I'd never heard this before. I'd mentioned to you a few weeks ago when we were talking about Christopher Lee in his reading of Dracula, that uh, like three-hour reading of Dracula, that that was one of the two best read performances that I've ever heard. And uh, this is the other one. This is my, my top two. And I don't think many Orson Welles people know this at all. So you have, it was for a program that had exactly one episode where it's supposed to be Orson Welles reading, which is a great idea for a show. And I wish he had done more of that. And someone could say, oh, he did the Mercury Theater. He has all these radio things. It's still not the same as reading something. And he didn't write books, so he couldn't, like, do his own recordings of those. I always think about that. People say that to me, too. They're like, you should, when you have audiobooks, you should be the one doing the reading. I think that would work really well, whether it's, like, Meatheads or... Sam Cooke or Buried on the Beaches, that kind of thing. And Wells's voice was suited for it as well. So this is really his moment as a reader. And he had remarked a number of times over that, for instance, with Shakespeare, and Shakespeare was the great passion of Orson Welles' life for all of his interests. It was Shakespeare he cared about more than anything. He said to appreciate Shakespeare, you have to read Shakespeare aloud. And so... I think he's bringing some of that notion to bear on John Donne. And John Donne was someone who was, in this particular work, No Man Being an Island, he's in a Thoreau type of vein, where the voice is very Thoreau-like, wouldn't you say, where he says, each man's, he basically says, okay, this person sucks, that person sucks, that person sucks, but it doesn't matter. The death of each man, each human, people prefer, diminishes me. Mm. It, it, it takes from the human store. And I think that's something that's not strictly true literally, or even really that close to true literally. But in terms of the idea, ideologically, I know exactly what he's saying. He's talking about sort of the connection we have with each other and the right that we're supposed to do by each other and the empathy we're supposed to have for our fellow human. And what I like about it is that Wells, who is so distinctive in everything he does is very subtle in this. It's very underplayed. Well, he's one of those people, like the collective of the Grateful Dead. I think people just get a lot of things wrong with Wells. I think there are all of these tropes and saws in place that don't get challenged very often, because as you say that, I agree with you. But it flashes through my mind so many other things he's done where he's not this larger-than-life presence. He's this 
larger-than-life presence maybe because he's so effective, but not because he's oratorically draconian, if you know what I mean, mm-hmm. thinking about something like his his performances in The Hitchhiker. Now, that's a bravura set piece for one person. He's just going to handle the entire thing. Like the whole going my way guy doesn't really have a lot to say in that, just like Orson Welles, and then he makes that phone call at the end, and his mother's had the nervous breakdown. So it's just him. You could very easily be histrionic doing a performance like that. But he's composed the entire time. I really feel like he finds what suits a given work best, and that's what mm-hmm. he goes with. Think about like the third man. He's quite restrained in that right. too. So he's not uh, all over the map vocally here with with this reading of John Dunn. I think of like Paul McCartney. He shows all of his range and why don't we do it in the road. That's not what Orson Welles is doing here. And it's uh, this metaphysical work of genius that I think is, I don't want to say it becomes better when it's read aloud by Welles, but it becomes certainly a different creation. Up next, a fascinating interview from 1937 with Welsh writer Arthur Mackin from the BBC, where he makes a statement, and I was I was all ready to take issue with it, and then I followed his instruction and began thinking about memorable characters from fiction. And his point is that mm-hmm. supreme artists have no interest in lifelike characters. Yes, and that's precisely what I wanted to dial in on, and which we should focus on. And he makes the example of Dickens and Chesterton. And he says that Chesterton is nowhere near the writer Dickens is. Chesterton gives us characters that you could go out and meet at the bar, whereas you could never go out and meet the characters that Dickens has in his novels. And I think this made me think of my own work, because people will say to me that these people are out in the world. And this is the alchemy of great art, where you would not have someone in the world at all. Like, take, for instance, Fiddy in the story of the same name. You'd never come across someone like that out in the world. But that's the trick. You think you would. That's what he's talking about. He's just not parsing it quite that way. Because if you just were reliant on the people you know and you've met and your memories and the people you work with and your family and your friends, I don't really know how to put this other than say they're very boring and they live prosaic lives. You can't just transcribe their lives. They're out there. Certainly, you know them. You just saw them at work today at the meeting and you just like called the relative at night and congratulated the friend on the birth of their latest kid. But it's humdrum. So you have to have that alchemy where you have these people that could be out there that are more real than humans in a sense. So what he's also meaning, I think, is that inside of these people is this concatenation of all of these different strands of what a person can be and what a person is and what that character is, that they're emblematic of all these other different people. And that's not just to say that like there's some collage because they're autonomous, but you wouldn't meet someone like that out in life, but you have to have the reader think that not only would you meet them in life, that's the next person you're going to meet, and that's representative, not just of all of us, but of that reader very specifically, more so than anyone else. That's what the reader has to think. That's what he's talking about. That's what he means when he says someone like Scrooge. Now, Scrooge isn't someone that 
you know someone like in that they're a carbon copy of Scrooge, but you also do know Scrooge. It's just in a different sort of manner. So I think that's a huge distinction. If you're, that's what happens with these MFA programs. People are just making a character out of some boob in the class with them from Darian, Connecticut, who also <laughs> is terrible at writing. But that's what they're doing. They're just transcribing that person and changing the name. That's why those stories, they have no life. They have no point. No one wants them. No one reads anymore. It's because of that saturating the publishing culture. So he's completely right. And the thing that's interesting, too, about Mac and his best writing, for, for everything he was saying, his best writing was ghost stories. He was a master ghost. He's one of the three, four, five best ghost story writers we have. And those characters have to be recognizably human to us. We have to to see elements that we understand. But but to paraphrase what he says and to relate it to, well, let's say Fiddy, you want the reader to come away saying, I've never met anybody like that before. And his response would be, but wouldn't it be great when you did? But you also want them to think that Fiddy is down the block. Right. You just haven't met her yet. But when you look across the street and the light goes on in the bedroom upstairs of the house, that could be her putting the light on. That's what you need to think. And it's like, you take like Chad from Meatheads, a number of people said to me, I know someone exactly like that. And that's what people will think. There's this transmutation that occurs that the human imagination and the need to liken will do some mm. of the work for you. And the true prose artist knows that, but there isn't actually someone out there that like, oh yes, this is clearly like the model for Chad. But it doesn't mean at the same time that that character, that they're this archetype, because they're not. They have to be more, I remember saying this to you one time, they have to be more real than you are and than I am. And that's why I know, for instance, when I make these characters or when they come to me and they tell me their stories, that's how I know that there's something beyond me, because that's not just coming from within me. That's coming out of me, but it comes from somewhere else first. And so I think Mackin was well aware of this. It's a fascinating interview. I don't know anyone who knows that this exists. It's from 1937. He has 10 years left in his life, and it's like, what, less than four minutes long? And it's such a crucial point. You could save someone the money of going to graduate school for an MFA degree, play them those four minutes. And if they really understand it, there's no excuse not to if you just listen to this, then that's so much of the key right there. Absolutely. Colin Fleming with us on downtown. Let's talk music here. Uh, we await the release. Maybe you're going to see it. Uh, you're getting an advanced copy, I think, of the Peter Jackson documentary on the Beatles uh, Get Back, but a, a tasty little tidbit uh, from rehearsal for the White Album of Cry Baby Cry, and I, I love the vocal on this. This is the rocked-up version. So I was thinking kind of like the song in general. There are all these different permutations uh, of it. You have the Easter demo, and you have the track that's on the White Album itself. You have this rehearsal that you just mentioned with the heavy sort of heavy-handed drum performance that they haven't, but it's a rehearsal. They haven't figured it out yet. But it strikes me because it's such a McCartney-esque melody. It's something you'd expect McCartney to tumble out of bed and be able to write effortlessly, like sing-along junk, that type of thing. But it's Lennon writing in a McCartney mode and applying this kind of uh, royalty theme to it, the Queen of Marigolds. It's very fanciful. It's like a mashup of the monarchy and 
Lewis Carroll. Lewis Carroll was somebody that Lennon liked. And it's the Beatles song that I would say I have in my head, running through my head more commonly than any other song. It's in a minor key, but it's certainly not a dirge-like song or anything like that. And it's very... Shane McGowan talked about you need the lilt. And it made sense for Shane McGowan because there's just a kind of a natural lilt to Irish music. And Lennon had some Irish blood in him. And this song certainly is an English lilter. We can almost think of the Queen of Marigold. Like it's very circular, the rhythm. And that's not something that Lennon would normally do. He was more kind of a linear melodist, whereas McCartney would move in these circular motivic patterns. So to see that little departure and it's just one of those tracks in the white album too where it's this ostensible throwaway but it's really not a throwaway at all it's part of one of the one of the songs that makes that uh, there there was a russian literary critic and he talked about the carnivalesque in like the 1920s and how you would have these labyrinths within novels and very much the white album itself it's not a novel of course but as a double album it's a carnivalesque album and it's kind of burlesque in part because you have these like little sideshows like mm. come down this alley it'll be cool look at this little thing going on over here with the puppets and that's cry baby cry and, and i like the fact that uh, so many of the lennon vocals are double tracked and, and this one is just it's pure and it's it's really to me the essence of lennon yes lennon did uh <laughs> just one of those funny things where he didn't like his voice so whenever he could get treatment to it, if you will, whether it's automatic double tracking or just sort of like distortion, anything, echo. He was singing off mic. He sings off mic in your blues. You would think that a guy like this, I mean, he's the best rock and roll singer, I believe, would just embrace kind of those moments of being out there in the vocal nude, so to speak, like he is after the middle eight on this boy, where he just hangs in the air. Mm on that on that one note and so yes this is uh again i just the idea of 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 them rehearsing and that's certainly what you're going to get killing time rehearsing with the whole get back thing which i'm i am doing this big piece for the daily beast on that but uh this is just one of those beatles songs too that no one talks about it's this hidden away gem that uh, I, I like them in their so-called like down moments when it's not like here's the official boom, hey Jude because I think something like this is in some ways more revealing of mm. of what their oh, really of what their sort of soul was I agree, I uh, love this version uh, from the BBC back in 94, some early Green Day, and uh, speaking of great vocals, I don't know that uh, Billy Joe Armstrong has ever sounded better, nor have their harmonies sounded better than in this little uh, 10, 15-minute clip from the BBC. This is, and uh, I think this is one of the best pure, straight-up, adrenalized rock and roll recordings in history. I think this is one for the shortlist. I think this is pretty tough to beat, this particular air shot. And I've listened to a lot of Green Day of late when I've been running stairs. Yesterday and today, I listened to those three albums. They had come out, Uno, Dos, and Trey, and I think it was 2012. And you can tell that, like, I mean, they're catchy, but they're not the same as they were. A lot of times, like, people have songs, and they have their best songs come out, and it's spent early, and maybe that was the best they were going to have. So, you, like, you look at the lyrics compared to those 
albums from 2012, they're at a completely different level, even though they're much younger men. But this is, uh, well, I mean, take any of these songs. I think uh, they're better on this BBC version than they are even, I'm just not knocking like the, the, the Dookie version of When I Come Around, but feel how heavy and hard and guttural that riff hits in these in this radio version and it's just it's it is one of the best riffs ever written in popular music it, it truly is i don't think it gets enough credit because people just thought they were kind of like this post buzzcocks blend of punk and and melody music and they weren't like really like true punk and that was sort of the knock on green day at the time and this this session is i assume the session will be out in full in this album of their bbc songs that are coming out in December, but this is the only BBC session from 94. And I thought about it afterwards because it's in my head now that you remember like, Oh no, it's live rock and roll. I am against that. I only like So I was thinking, Oh, surely Kimball, he'll be able to, you ready for it, Kimball? He'll be able to come around on this. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm no, I'm no basket case. Believe me. Uh, <laughs> oh, Kimball, I was going to like make a joke about long but we need to keep this a family. <laughs> well, no, what's interesting to me though, with these, we've talked about a few of these BBC sessions uh, on the program here with you and, uh, musicians seem to really rise to the occasion for these because they're all always high quality. Despite the generations, and it's like you, you could you, you could remove like official rock and roll albums, like studio albums, and you could just be left with BBC recording, and you could tell a pretty fantastic story of rock and roll. Mm. You could tell the Beatles story as well as possible, and you have uh, sort of other acts too, like the Stones and the Who. They weren't quite as decorated on the BBC as the Beatles were, but we've talked about. Joy Division, and we talked about Echo and the Bunnymen, Peel Sessions, and groups of, uh, of of that nature. And it's some of the best music for all of these groups. It's some of the best music they ever made. I mean, I think, to me, the most, we've said this before, the most Beatlesque of all recordings is, is the 1963 BBC recordings. And so Green Day, I don't know, there's something that got into bands. It was like playing Madison Square Garden. Or it's like, I've seen certain bands doing their first show in the United States. Like, there's this band that had an album in 2002, was their debut in the band, well, rather foolishly called themselves The Music. And this was a dumb thing to do because, like, the internet was just sort of, like, take, taking off and you really needed a specific name. But they were an excellent band. And I saw their first show at this little club in Cambridge, and there were, like, seven people there. But they were going for it. So the vaccine's first show. So I think you have these rise to the occasion gigs where they just mean something to you personally. Like your first NHL game. And so the BBC, clearly, for both English bands and an American band like Green Day, it meant a lot to them. It was like that first night out in the Garden Ice. Colin Fleming with us here on Downtown. Visit uh, the... The website, of course, ColinFlemingLit.com. Subscribe to the Many Moments More blog. Get your hands on Colin's book on Sam Cooke. 
live at the Harlem Square Club 1963. Keep your eyes open for the soon-to-be-released Scrooge book, and uh, we'll check in with you again very soon. All right. Sounds good, my friend. Right, Colin Fleming covering a broad range of topics, as always. Colin joins us on our radio show uh, every week here on Downtown. That'll wrap it up for the podcast this time around, episode number 185. Thanks for joining us. We remind you that Downtown is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. For Carrie Haskell, I'm Rich Kimball. We'll see you next time on Downtown.